E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. The Bordeaux classification of 1855 has had a lasting effect on the wine industry and has maintained a powerful presence in the marketing of Bordeaux wine. Things began when Napoleon III requested a classification for the wines on display at the Exposition Universelle in Paris. These grand world fairs were important cultural statements for emerging nations. The fairs were opportunities to show off new technologies and to celebrate various aspects of regional culture, from the arts to cuisine. They also served as information hubs, where interdisciplinary ideas were exchanged Advances on display in one industry sector might spark a revolutionary advancement in a different sector. When 1855 rolled around, Paris was set to host a major world fair, and Emperor Napoleon III had just begun his reign. The exposition's success was of importance to him, and there was also an intense desire to outdo the London Exposition that had just dazzled the world in 1851. Emperor Napoleon III put his cousin, Prince Napoleon, in charge of the exposition, and they had a palace of industry built to rival London's Crystal Palace. The Parisian structure was extremely large, approximately three football fields long and one football field wide. Still, a few satellite buildings had to be built to accommodate the large number of exhibitors. In addition to celebrating culture, Napoleon made this exposition different from others by giving it a marketplace air. Just about everything inside the palace was for sale, with price tags. This market-like exhibition gave the event a different feel than previous exhibitions. And this aim at the exposition also influenced the classification of 1855. Because everything was to have a price tag, it seemed to make sense that the best wines would be the most expensive, and so on down through tier pricing. For the wine portion of the exhibition, this translated into categorizing the wines into price tiers that in the minds of the brokers who create the tiers corresponded with quality tiers. Making wine a part of the exposition was another way to ensure that they would have a leg up on London's recent exposition. Wine was important to France, and it would be a major display of talent to give French wine some serious recognition. To give you an idea of how important wine was to France compared to England at that time, consider that in a contemporary report, 
Statistics show that the city of Paris alone drank five times as much wine per person each year than the entire landmass of Great Britain and Ireland combined. How successful was the exhibition itself for wine sales? Considering that the Palace of Industry had terrible ventilation and the space became incredibly hot during the day, it's difficult to tell exactly how the wines were showing, but the lasting effects of the classification system still bear great weight today. The 1855 classification is not without its faults. Many critics and wine experts create their own lists of best Bordeaux wines to combat the inherent flaws in the classification. First and foremost, the classification is based solely on chateau and is not tied to geography. Many of the chateau have bought and sold land since 1855, making several of the current chateau landholdings much different today than they were at the time of the classification. Divorcing a wine quality classification of land implies that the producer is the most important factor in a wine's quality, instead of terroir. And this is a contradiction to most other wine classification systems elsewhere in France and in the world. Also, vineyard material today is much different, especially after the replantings made necessary by phylloxera. And the second label phenomenon has bifurcated production at many of the chateaux, changing the composition and baseline quality of their product. Also, the 1855 classification is not easily amended, which means that producers could theoretically slack off for a long period of time and ride on the coattails of their classification to carry them through periods of lower quality output. Likewise, producers could increase the quality of their land holdings and production, but have little to no chance of upward mobility in the classification. Despite the flaws in the system, the classification has surely been a factor in the continued success of the chateau at the top of the classification namely the first and second growth chateau. Over time, the persistent resilience of the 1855 classification has created an almost untouchable error around first and second growth producers, who for the most part do not seem to experience the same fluctuation in market popularity as other Bordeaux producers. Who would have thought that a few brokers putting together a priced quality list of Bordeaux producers for the 1855 Paris Exposition could have such lasting effects on a wine region. Stay tuned to hear more from a second growth chateau producer with centuries of experience. One of the first things I learned doing harvest in California is where to buy wine, and that is Bottle Barn. Classic wines, natural wines, cult wines, up and coming producers. Excellent vintages, hard-to-source bottles, and daily drinkers. Bottle Barn has them all, and Bottle Barn has them all for great prices. Honestly, I, I really don't know how they do it. I've seen pricing from Bottle Barn for some fancy wines that is several hundred dollars less than I would have expected. And I've also seen wines for under 30 bucks that I would have expected to have been significantly more than that. Plus, when I get my wine... It's in perfect condition. That's why I do what all the best winemakers in California do. I shop at Bottle Barn. Try for yourself. Use the promo code VINO15 for 15% off your first order at BottleBarn.com. That's V-I-N-O-1-5 for 15% off your first order at BottleBarn.com.
Bruno Bori of Chateau du Cru Bucayou. Your dad seemed like a cool cat from what I read about him. <laughs> yeah. People seem to really like him. He was, a, he was a very, very modest, very concerned, very professional, got a very almost English kind of humor. And uh, that's probably why the writers liked him so much. Yeah, probably. You know, peppercorn and yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and all yeah, those guys. Was, um, yeah, he was uh, pretty close. And, uh, and England has always been uh, uh, close to, to his heart. I was more of a of a, an American. Why do you uh, think that was? Because he sent me uh, in England when I was twelve, I think, or thirteen, and I went there during the summer uh, summer season. And uh, I went to a school, and I was staying in a family, but the family was got paid for that, so they were not the nicest uh, person. And the worst was the college or the school. Where <laughs> they were so happy to have a to have a frog, so they called me, and um, that was a real bad time. So when I came back, I said to my dad, "I say, okay, daddy, I see your point. You want me to speak English? You think it will be impossible to survive in tomorrow's world without speaking English? But could you send me to America rather than England? I will promise that I will learn the language, but please not in England because they are too rude with me." And uh, and he accepted, so I went to uh, I went to America, and um, and since then it has been a very serious affair. I stayed in uh, California as a trainee, worked at Monterey uh, Vineyard. Who was in charge at that time? Doug Peterson. And I was staying, but after a while, I I, <laughs> I rather stayed with the Mexicans. And uh, <laughs> there's probably not a lot of Mexicans in France. Like, no, it's probably an exotic thing. Well, it was extremely exotic in those days, and uh, uh, when I came back with tortillas, uh, they didn't know what it was because for us tortillas is is an omelet. And uh, but what I recall in Monterey is that I, I would go, <laughs> I would go in the in the morning in the fields with a with a Browning three gauge gun. And uh, this Irish setter that didn't know how to hunt, but he was extremely happy with me. So we, <laughs> we would shoot the quails, and uh, and even the jackrabbits. But the uh, that makes for good tortillas. The wasp, you know? the the wasp wouldn't share my passion for hunting those birds, but the Mexican loved them. And so we had dinners, and we we were eating games, and uh, you know uh, it was a real real uh, nice time there. And then I also had some friends in. Uh, down south, even in Bakersfield, so, uh, grape growers from Bakersfield, which was for me a, a total new experience. When you, they don't see, talk about that in Bordeaux, the Bakersfield growers. They don't, no, that's no, not I, I think I'm the only one to to have been friend with one of the most charming family called the Wilsons, and the Wilsons were from Shafter, California, next to Bakersfield, and uh, Gary had I don't know how many blocks of Ruby cabs and Thompson Seedless. And, uh, of course, he, uh, they were not in the orange belts. They were like almonds and all kind of other productions, but, uh, but they had grapes. And it was so interesting for me coming from Ducribocayu to see that people, you know, they will grow Thompson seedless grapes and they will decide every year whether the grapes will be used for making wine or making raisins or, or making uh, fruit juice. And 
So I think it's a good introduction to the world, you know, to all of a sudden realize that there is not only Ducru Bocayou on the planet, there are some grape growers that, you know, not necessarily make wine and that, you know, that uh, don't necessarily know about uh, Bordeaux and etc. So, but for me, it was wonderful. Plus the fact that uh, in America, the young kids have a share of voice, even though my family was, has always been quite open Normally, the kids don't really talk around the table. So, uh, but in California or in America, you're entitled. The kids have uh, the share of voice is even probably larger than other parents. We let them run the place. Yeah. So uh, that was a difference, and uh, you know, I was happy. They had uh, it. It was uh, so. I am. I was born in '56. So let's say that it was probably in the '70s, and um, in those years, you know, pickups. Pickup with a CB simply didn't exist in France. And then, when you have a pair of uh, a pair of boots, Texan boots from Justin's probably, Justin Texan boots, and and you have a hat and you have a, and you really feel like a cowboy, and you you arrive in, <laughs> in Gonzales, California. <laughs> you think you are something. You think you're a real cowboy. <laughs> They probably didn't have the hippie chicks in uh, in France as much either, right? No, no, no. They didn't have anything. So it, it was, uh, yeah. I think it was uh, probably today is not that exotic. After all, there is not so much difference. But uh, but in those years, there was a, a hell of a difference, and uh, I think it probably opened my my eyes. Because you'd uh, grown up at the crew. I was grown up, uh, yeah. But that's somewhat unusual. I mean, today I think a lot of times wineries are owned in Bordeaux by larger companies. Uh, when you think about it, not that many. In fact, if you look into the 61 uh, classified gross, actually most of them are still family-owned business. And when it comes to big investors, in fact, they take it personally. In other words, François Pinot, who, is, uh, who owns Gucci and many other brands, invested at Chateau Latour, I think, on a personal basis. It's Artemis, which is the, the family group, I think. When you look at the uh, Chanel for Rosan Segla, uh, it's still the family. Uh, Chanel is not even uh, quoted on the uh, on the stock exchange. When you talk about Bouygues, which is a, a very very big group in France, they take it personally, and it's the family business. So within the sixty one classified growth, I would say that you barely find an institution. Uh, you do have insurance, AXA Group, that is institutional. Yeah, but the rest, the rest are pretty uh, family-owned. But on the other hand, um, we were probably one of the very few family to really live on the spot. Growing up as a kid, I mean, how many kids are in the school? That are, I mean, how many? Oh, kids there were are no, there? there were no other chateau owner. No, we were the only one. <laughs> I see my brother, my sister, my brother, and I. We were probably the only one from classified growth. You know, uh, going to Poyac and school, and then. Uh, and then sent to a boarding school in Bordeaux and, and et cetera. So. You knew from the start that you wanted to be involved with wine. It was something probably natural, even though probably my father was, uh, my father never pushed us into it. I think actually he would have much preferred that we would be uh, doctors or lawyers or et cetera. You have to realize that it was not that easy. In the 50s, when he took over and his father passed away, my father thought about new ideas to, to survive. 
and the Cru Bocayou by itself was not uh, profitable. So he had his wine merchant activity, but he thought about developing, opening an, an insurance company. He's acting as an agent, and uh, he thought about producing apples. He thought about all kinds of things, developing uh, cattle, developing etc. So the the Medoc was not as prosperous as, as you know it now. And so there had to be, uh, I think it, since the mid-60s, it, it, it became a little better, but uh, until the mid-60s, it was pretty tough. So probably his ambition uh, was not that we would enter, and he knew that being three, it would be difficult for three to survive on the same estate. Because you had a brother and a sister. Yeah. So uh, you divide that by three, so you better orientate your children to other activities. But your dad bought Grand Poy Lacoste. My dad did bought a lot of things. He was a pretty successful uh, businessman. So, well, Emile Peino has always been working with the family from the very beginning, even before I think my father's grandfather was using him in Kansas when he was making medium sweet Bordeaux. So uh, they were al- already consulting. And then uh, my father went to the university to listen to Emile Peino's courses in the mid 50s. At the Cru Bocayou, we know the, about the malolactic fermentation since, I think, 59. And uh, we, where we really managed to uh, conduct properly the malolactic fermentation. 61, we were, everything was done in the most modern uh, way in terms of alcoholic fermentation and malolactic fermentation. Because a lot of people say your 61 is one of your best wines ever, right? Yeah. So I think it was really the, uh, it was really the, the time where they had the, uh, they had integrated this uh, Emil Peno's recommendation. and Because uh, you were born in 56, so at the age of three, you didn't get a chance to tell them yet about Mallow. They probably learned it from Emil Peno, right? <laughs> you weren't like, hey, guys, I'm here, and I got news for you. <laughs> no. Your dad's like, my son is brilliant. <laughs> yeah. I would have loved that, but uh, no. <laughs> and... As soon as, and this is good, and this is, I know that we are in an almost communist country in France, but uh, very interesting to see that the market is, the market helps you to improve. Without the market, you don't improve yourself, and that's, that's what we learned from the Tokai in Hungary, you know, under the communist era, they, 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 they stopped making Tokai, and uh, at the end, you know, they were just... Uh, um, Putting some spirit in the in the must, and that was it. You know, so they forgot about uh, all the uh, the old process and etc. And same in uh, in Bordeaux. What was the market? All of a sudden, by making better wine, the Cribocayou, you were able to sell better at a slightly, at least. I wouldn't say that you were necessarily selling at a higher price, but you were at least certain that you will sell all your wine year in year out. And that was a real big progress. And by making top wines, you then got recognitions, mostly for the from uh, uh, the British uh, merchants. Some Americans were coming, but probably more in, in the 70s. But that, uh, wines were shipped to America already in the 50s and 60s. Well, well Parker loved you guys, though. Yeah, I mean, right? I mean, yeah. in the 80s and 90s, he, yeah, you oh, know, yeah, he yeah, wrote yeah, very yeah. well about the wines. So I think um, because you have the market, the market force you to improve all the time and to look on how to improve and, and find new ways to, 
to give more satisfaction to the consumer and therefore make uh, make more money and and survive and then more to survive to develop yourself and develop your company. So, but there's a history of innovation there. Like this is the mm. place where someone invented Bordeaux mixture, right? De Cru. They invented the copper mixture that are. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, that was at that your was property, right? Yes, before the, your family. Oh yeah, right? yeah, yeah. That was under the Johnstone Day. Uh, uh, it was in 1870. Because now we call that Bordeaux mixture. Right? Yeah, yeah. The could Bordeaux mixture was called the Cru mixture if they could, wanted. To, could be called you know? the the Ducru, uh, the Ducru mixture. And every place in the world uses that pretty much. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, no, but he was uh, the Johnstone that were then the owner at the Cru Bocayou were very dynamic. He was a fully graduated engineer from the best school of France, Polytechnique. And um, I know it's very romantic to look backwards and et cetera. And we are extremely proud of the, of the past, but it's amazing to see the genius that has been developed at each period of time since the very beginning. So your I, family, the Boris, take over in the 1920s, the crew? Um, no. That was a bataille that we took in the 1920s. The crew we took uh, in the 40s. Uh, in fact, uh, the crew Bocayou is a, a kind of a sad story. The um, owner, the then owner, Monsieur Desbarra, who had married a very wealthy lady from uh, Ireland, from the Burke family, uh, married his daughter to um, a pretty wealthy family in Bordeaux. And the, the new son-in-law suited his father-in-law for the reason that he, he sought, because he was old money, and the, the owner, Monsieur Desbarra, was new money. And he thought that, of course, uh, the, the new money didn't know nothing, and, and he, the old money, would know everything. So, very sadly, he suited his, his father-in-law to uh, saying that he, would ruin, that he was ruining uh, the daughter of his wife. And uh, Monsieur Desbarra won the case. And then he said, never a member of this family will put one tooth at the Crubocayou. Unfortunately, uh, he couldn't find somebody to buy because it was after the 29 crash and then it was the beginning of the war and etc. So he couldn't get rid of the Crubocayou. So he ran into my grandfather and offered him to rent the place. And uh, we rented it since 1941. And uh, I think until 1965, we were renting. So we made wine, we were responsible for farming the estate, but not really owning it until 1965. So did Peinot work with your father to choose properties? Did he advise him on what he should purchase? Oh, yeah, yeah. In those days, yeah, it was... Uh, a consultant was was a friend. He was like a doctor, you know, like in the old days when you used to have a family doctor, you know, you, he will the doctor in the family will give birth to the family. He knew everybody, so they had very close link. And I think that a consultant in those days was exactly the same. So when Emile Peno was coming to to Ducry Bocayou, they would he would have lunch with us, and we had very close uh, relation with a, a mutual respect and a mutual distance because in those days relationship between people was. Uh, Probably not as open, but probably deeper. And I think that, yeah, with Emile Peinot, with his notary, with his... We didn't have a lawyer. Didn't need lawyer in those days. You didn't need to write things. You just, you know, a word was a word. And uh, yeah, 
a trust means that you, you you don't have to sign, you don't have to declare, you don't have you, you just know that the guy is going to be loyal to you, and you know that whatever happens, you're going to stay loyal to this guy. And uh, I think today uh, it's probably a little better to write things. Uh, in those days, it was not necessary. And Grand Prix was a. Uh, a lovely wine and has always been recognized as a, as a wonderful wine. But the uh, previous owner, Monsieur Dupin, had no family. He was not, he had no uh, successor except a nephew. And the nephew had inherited another chateau a few years before. And he immediately sold the chateau because he didn't know what to do with it. So Mr. Dupin said to himself, okay, if I transmit Grand Prix Lacoste to this nephew, then he will sell. So why don't I sell and just give him cash? Which he did. So he was uh, he uh, contacted my uh, my father through our common friend uh, notary in Poyac, and they Jacques Vialard called my father and say, uh, "Would you be interested?" My father said, "Yes, of course." And I and I recall that he refused uh, when the notary asked him when do you want to visit he refused to visit he said no i will not insult raymond i trust him so it's a wonderful estate so i will not visit and uh, before the sale he didn't want to go yeah, check it out he didn't check anything he didn't check the inventories he didn't check the uh, the material he didn't check the vineyards and etc so not even the price he didn't agree they agreed on the price on the table of the of the notary so um, no no it was just a, a passion but I recall that in 78, when my father purchased Grand Puy Lacoste, he might have questioned uh, Emile Penot about it. He might have, uh, I know that his, uh, I was then seller master, André uh, Prévost, insisted that you know he must go for it. And uh, that was important. And that was a great estate. So he didn't have that many advices, but he had a few. So after being at the Krubu for a while, your brother Xavier went to head up Grand Puy Lacoste and Poyac, and then in 03 you assumed control of the Krubu What are the differences there? There are differences, but that, there are probably not that many differences <laughs> in a sense that in each commune, let's say uh, Saint-Julien and Poyac, there is, of course, a, a difference between what is next to the estuary and what is opposite to the estuary. And uh, in fact, another way of looking into the Medoc is looking on the distance to the estuary. But the first thing you have between Poyac and uh, Saint-Julien is that Poyac is much larger. It's uh, almost three times the size of uh, Saint-Julien. But yes, there is, I recall also one very good point made by Bernard Ginesting. Bernard Gineste was a previous owner of uh, Chateau Margaux, and he brought uh, some books called uh, Le, Le Grand Bernard uh, des Vins, and he talks about all those different communes. And when he comes to Saint-Julien, he says, very interestingly, if the INAO, Institut National d'Appellation d'Origine, the, uh, that uh, made the appellation system in the 30s, had used the old system of the churches or paroisses that pre-existed to the Napoleon organization of communes, then uh, Latour, Chateau Latour, will be in Saint-Julien, which was the same, was the same parish. And therefore, Latour 
will be in Saint-Julien, which was then called Saint-Julien de Reignac. We will be in, uh, Latour will be in Saint-Julien, which offers a better solution than the one that consists in putting Latour and Lafitte and Mouton together. And uh, I, I think it's a very good point. I think uh, the Appellation d'Origine is a, is, a, is a good system. They have tried to do things and they have succeeded in, in really improving the way or facilitate the understanding and etc. and the organization of the production and so on and so forth. So I'm not there to denounce this uh, Appellation d'Origine, but I think that on the other hand, Bernard Ginesté made really an interesting point in saying that sometimes the system is not totally perfect and, uh, and sometimes you don't really have the homogeneity that you will consider just because Saint-Julien is more a commune from an administrative standpoint rather than an agronomic angle. And uh, it was not the intention of the administration to uh, monitor the terroir or the ecosystem. So that's why like, in Saint-Julien we have 100 hectares, I would say, a little more, divided in three different areas that are producing three different styles of wines. And the very difference is just that each ecosystem is different from the other. The Ducrubocayou system depends on beautiful soil. Bocayou means beautiful stone, so you have a lot of stones in the soil. And then you are next to the estuary and you have beautiful slopes going down to the estuary with a perfect exposition to the sun. Then for the Croix de Bocayou, we are in the middle, in the very center of the Appellation, with, where we occupy the south flank Lamouline stream that cut the Appellation Saint-Julien in two parts, in the middle. And it's a lot of stones, but a different exposition and, and certainly less influence of the river. And then on the western part- And that's a parcel that you bottle individually, under yeah. its own bottle. Yeah. It doesn't go into the uh, into the decrude. And then we have uh, La Landbori, which is more recent, but it's, uh, which is a, an acquisition from 1970, and that my father, it is in Saint-Julien, in the commune of Saint-Julien, but it's totally different in soil, it's totally different in climate, it's located on the opposite side of the Appellation, and my father always kept it separated from decrude, and I continue to do that, and uh, and that's the best proof that you know, it's still in the same commune, but it's totally different style. Your father, unfortunately, passed away in 98. Your mother gives you the keys to Ducru Bukayu. You show up in 2003. What did your yeah. mother tell you at the time? In fact, after my father passed away, my brother was responsible for the entire group. So we had um, almost 100 hectares in Saint-Julien, almost 100 hectares in uh, Poyac, and... Um, it was his decision to really separate because he said, you know, if we, it's going to be difficult with three families. He already had his own family and three children. My sister already married with also three children. It would be difficult to be, uh, I would say, six and, and even more if, uh, if Bruno decides to, uh, to marry somebody and have children. We're going to be nine or ten. Uh, for Ducrubocayou alone, it's going to be a little too much. So it might brother insulated this idea that we we should uh, separate the businesses and uh, we on a common decision uh, within, within all the members that he will 
stay in Poyac uh, with Grandpa Lacoste and Obataille, and I will stay with my mother, my sister, and myself for the Saint Julien Vineyard. And then once we were there, <laughs> my mother and sister decided that I should take the direction of the uh, of the vineyard. And uh, on the third of January two thousand three, and the mission was, I guess, we trust you. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> like when your dad bought Grand Poy like us. That, yeah. that kind of agreement. <laughs> yes, that kind of agreement, exactly. <laughs> but you had run Lillet. You'd been the owner of Lillet before you sold it to Pernell Ricard previous yeah. to that. What that did you was, take from that experience moving back into directly into wine? Lillet was a wonderful experience uh, uh, that occupied me during over 20 years. I guess this is the, the kind of dilemma that you have when you're uh, you're a child you, you you want to show your father that you are not exactly as stupid as he think you are or that at least the impression maybe he didn't think that i was stupid but at least that's that was my own impression and etc so so i first decided to maybe it was the cowboy boots did you show him the cowboy boots yeah, <laughs> yeah he's exactly. like what are you thinking to wear that careful who raised you you know i don't know maybe that was it man. you told him too much about the tortillas and when stuff. i yeah and the jalapenos and when i started <laughs> yeah, he's like you eat jalapenos you are the stupidest person ever and you're like i'm gonna show you yeah, i can see that happen and i i started growing i brought back the seeds and i started growing corn and I recall that the once a family lunch, I think with my grandma, my grandma was there. And uh, we had my uncle who was in the uh, cereal business. He was a broker, you know, a big, big broker in, in cereal. <laughs> and all of a sudden I am here and I present the first crop of sweet corn. And of course, having spent some time with the Mexican, I really knew when to pick it. You know, it was nothing to... Nothing to be compared with what you get here in New York. You know, real, real, freshly harvested sweet corn, you know, that is not yellow. It's kind of a, a, a very pale yellow and, and the green outside and the, I don't know what you call the, the hair part is not brown, it's green. And it's very fresh and tastes like, uh, like peas and uh, fresh peas, spring peas. And um, so I brought that on the table, on the Sunday table and... <laughs> They all looked at me and said, do you think we are chicken? <laughs> so, so, and my, my uncle said, oh, wow. This is, this is never going to happen in France, you know. People will never eat corn. It's for the hands. It's for the, the, the poultry, but not for humans. And, um, but I, I realize that now we, we eat a lot of, uh, we eat uh, the green giant is all over France now. And uh, every, uh, every salad, I think you, you find sweet corn. So, <laughs> so maybe it was not that open-minded. But my father, I think they, uh, no, my father hated it because we had to eat with our fingers. So that was a new thing, you know, eating with fingers at the Sunday, uh, Sunday lunch was you get the criminal. stuff stuck in your teeth, all yeah, 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 strings yeah, and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Right. And especially if you bring the 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 uh, the two parts that you, you to sure. to Hot eat right like a, like a, a, how do you call them the animals the sparrow or the guy who is in the uh, oh yeah like a woodchuck yeah <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah that's not popular in France no, that one no no <laughs> like a beaver yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
30 years ago, it certainly was not popular. 30, almost 40 years ago, it was definitely not popular. <laughs> so <laughs> It's a good thing the Dutch drained all the water because you guys wouldn't know how to make any dams without the beavers. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, so you ran Lille. And then- I ran Lille. No, I first uh, started to, um, to work for a negotiant in Bordeaux, uh, Peter Seychell, who was the uh, then still is the co-owner of Chateau Palmer. So that was a good introduction to, um, to Margot style. And uh, I drank my fair amount of Palmer 61. What was the Seychelles family like? Seychelles family were merchants. They were, they had joined together in 70. So you had a Seychelles branch in Germany producing Blue Non. You had a Seychelles branch in England, Walter Seychelles. And then you had a Seychelles in America here, Peter Max seashell and then you had a seashell in bordeaux so all those seashells decided to merge i think at the end of the 60s or early 70s but then they they had a big crisis in 73 so they uh changed and they explode again and uh, so each of them continue his own way and i joined the uh, the bordeaux uh, the bordeaux branch with uh, peter allen seashell who was a true gentleman and whose uh, family, whose sons now are um, conducting the business very, uh, very smartly, very nicely, very honestly. And um, they are still co-owner of Palmer. I think actually they are the major uh, shareholder there. So, uh, I know, it's a good, uh, very good family. They are, of course, they were English. And that also makes something special. And all of a sudden you have access to the English market, which is so close to Bordeaux. So Peter Seychell was a, a true gentleman and I, I learned a lot working with, with him. It was nice to hire me. I didn't mention to my father uh, before I was actually uh, hired, before he hired me, I didn't mention it to my father. Just only when, once he had hired me, I, I said to him. And, uh, but at least, you know, I spent some, uh, from 81 to 85, almost four years, three and a half years, working for Peter and mostly here in America. I started selling wine in, uh, in America. I sold some wine in uh, New York, New Jersey. You're selling the 82s? If you're there in 85, <laughs> yeah. you're selling 82s, yeah. right? I was selling I mean, 82s. That was probably a pretty nice day. Uh, it, was, it was the beginning of, of the nice days. Uh, no, no, but I was also selling not only classified gross. I was, we had a full range of bottles and... <laughs> One of my great, great souvenirs was selling medium sweet bottles in New York, New Jersey as a mass wine. <laughs> oh, as a mass? To, as a mass wine. Catholic mass. Yeah. By full container loads. That was great. <laughs> and I, I also recall selling wine to Mr. Berkowitz, who was in Boston, the owner of uh, uh, Legal Seafood. Sure. With him, as early as the 80s, I was drinking Ravenos uh, Chablis. And, uh, you know, when I heard, like, at the, at the turn of the 2000, you know, people say, oh, do you know Raveneau? Of course, I've been drinking Ravenos for, for 20 years now. So, it was <laughs> nobody knew about it, you know, and they legal. Yeah, they had it. We had, uh, we had the house wine, which we were shipping, you know, and each container of house wine for uh, Berkowitz, we will add a couple of pallets of Chablis and, you know, top burgundies and, and that was great. That was, for me, an introduction to these lovely wines and et cetera. So, no, no, it was a wonderful experience. And uh, I think that today 
I don't know if, uh, but I, I think it's an experience that is probably pretty unique in the in the chateaus. But I think it's a great experience for me. I, I know the sweet tier system. I, I knew Southern Wine in Spirit. I knew uh, the Charmers. I knew uh, Peerless. I knew uh, all those importers. Then I knew all the retailers and, and etc. So it's. Uh, I have a lot of souvenirs of this uh, and a lot of links with this American distribution and. Uh, no, I, I cherish it. It's it's close to my it's close to my heart. It uh, might sound bizarre to say that, but uh, no, I've I've had a solid experience. And uh, each time I land here in New York, you know, it's uh, you want to be part of the American dream. You you bring energy when you land in, here in New York and you come back to France. You come back with a lot of energy. Of course, they do everything to ruin this energy, but <laughs> therefore you have to come back more often. So. You take over in 2003. You hire Virginie, who's now your technical director for winemaking in 2004. Yep. She takes over in 06 for the yep. for the crew. What was the vision at the time? In 03, I didn't marry you? her. <laughs> no, but, no, no, I didn't mean. But what, what was your vision when you took over the crew? What did you, that you wanted to achieve? It's difficult to say or, or to express. I, I was not there with the idea of making a revolution or, or saying, oh, they did everything wrong in the past and I'm doing everything nice and et cetera. It was not the idea. The idea was just, you know, like I said earlier, wine is a consistent evolution. It benefits from all the techniques. At each era, for 5,000 years of history, it has catched always some influences here and there and some new techniques here and there and et cetera. So, with all the progress that we've made in this, in science and in techniques now, I mean, it was important to take advantage of all this. And um, I think, yes, it, the whole idea, I think, that um, any chateau has or should have is, I want to go to the essence of Ducru Bocayou. I know Ducru Bocayou pretty well. I have been injected. <laughs> I received injections of Ducru Bocayou since my youth. And, and it's there. So I know the mythical bottles of, of the crew, like the 61 that you mentioned. And my ambition is to get there and to the essence of the crew. Probably 61 is already an essentia in the, in the uh, Hungarian sense. It's, uh, it's already a very concentrated and probably it's the essence of, of the crew. So my ambition is just to make, to continue to reach this very essence. And I think that today, the, the, everything which is available in the, in the technology is, is helping us. In, and then there are plenty new issues that will make it possible to reach this essence uh, more and more, more often. And what are vintages where you feel like you've achieved that since 03? I think that every year we get closer. And uh, I think that I am extremely happy. Well, I'm extremely happy with the 03. Uh, but uh, with the O3, we we came. Uh, that that was the beginning <laughs> of uh, of this story because we came from a chateau that used to produce between fifteen to twenty thousand cases. We started to produce nine to eleven thousand cases per year. So you we, dropped the production of the Grand yeah, Bond quite a uh, bit. Yeah, yeah. We strengthened the the selection dramatically. We produced less in the field and we selected more. And at the same time, you've moved more to Cabernet Sauvignon. More and more, yes. We ended up with 90 to 95% cabs now. Because in an earlier era, there was Cabernet Sauvignon, a high percentage of Merlot, and then a little bit of Petit Verdot and Cabernet Franc. Yeah. Then it was Cab and Merlot for a long time. 
and now you've so and now we below are like 70 percent but now you're yeah. moving that higher than 90 so it's yeah. become more of a cab sauvignon based wine i think so that would be the idea if we uh if we can manage it uh, if we don't have too many problems with uh, with disease and etc we will probably we are extremely happy with vintages which have 90 to 95 percent cap is that something that you had seen from the 1996 vintage which is a strong vintage for the crew because in that year that was a heavy cap year right yeah exactly well no it's a, it's a thing that i have a the better, in fact, the better, uh, we do plant varietals according according to the soil and to the ecosystem, to each ecosystem. So certain areas are good for the cabs and certain areas where you have clay or where you have sand are not good for cabs and they are good for mellow. So that's the reason why you have this. And also the mellow were used also to... to uh, Soften, up soften the, uh, the blend and etc. Because of lack of maturation for the uh, for the caps and etc. But now we don't need that any longer. So we don't need because it's, it's warmer. Yeah, it no not because it's warmer because because we've not seen that since uh, 2003. In fact, it's not really warmer than than in the past for us in Bordeaux. But uh, what we've seen is that because we produce less, because we do more leaf thinnings, because we prune better because we do grape thinning. We have this perfect exposition of the clusters along the, the canes and along the wires. You get better maturity and therefore you you don't need you didn't need to soften all that. So uh, it's uh, it's perfect with pure caps and this expression of, of Cabernet is just it's just wonderful. It's uh, yeah, for us it's heaven. <laughs> People it, ask me what would you bring on a <laughs> On an island and etc. What other wines and etc. No, I, I would bring. I think that my mission. I need to become a Ducru expert. I don't. I, I'm not there to make another California, another Burgundy, or another uh, another Bordeaux. I make. I meant my mission is to make Ducru Bocayou, and to make Ducru Bocayou the purest Ducru Bocayou, to reach the essence of Ducru Bocayou uh, that has been revealed in some iconic vintages. Such as 61. The vineyard there is actually planted quite densely. So it may have been in other times previously somewhat difficult to get light inside the canopy. Yeah, and, yeah, and exactly. My father studied pretty early to uh, to do uh, leaf thinnings and, and, and etc. But he couldn't afford to do that all the summer. Now we can we can afford to send a team, you know, whenever it's needed. And of course, we can also afford to hire extra teams so we don't have the summer vacation. You know, in France there are a lot of vacation, but at least, you know, that doesn't affect us because if we don't have our home workers, we can hire other workers to do the leave thinning. And we must be ready throughout the summer. We must be ready to send teams in July, as July, August, September, just to do the most perfect, to adjust the canopy exactly like you adjust a curtain in front of your window. There was a new winemaking facility built in 95. You recently built some new structures in the vineyard in last year. Yeah, 3 million euros. In 2000, we built a new uh, a new cellar. So 95 new winery, 2000 new cellar. Last year, new facilities for everything, for, for all the vineyards. And in the meantime, new equipments in terms of uh, sorting tables, in terms of new uh, tractors and etc. Like I said earlier, I trust human genius. I trust humanity. I think if 
I think that God must be pretty happy. Of course, there is a, this minority that we all know about and that we don't even want to hear about. But generally speaking, I mean, humanity is wonderful. We are creating things that are just unbelievable. Look at all the progress that have been made in, uh, in medicines. Look at everything which has been made in any field. And there is no reason why the wine shouldn't take advantage of all those new technologies, new invention, and etc. And and we must implement them in the vineyard. There is no way that we would go back to the uh, to the Middle Ages. No, we want we want to go. We we trust human genius, and we trust the science. We trust the innovation, and we think we we're going to be better and better every year just by working more with all those scientists and using those new equipments. One of the things you did was implement an optical sorting table. Yeah, and two how, of them now. <laughs> how have you uh, found that to work? I mean, what have been your thoughts? Uh, the old idea is that now when you look at the grapes that we send to the vats for fermentation, they look like, you know, you take them in your hands and it's like having a uh, blueberry tart. They, all the berries are exactly the same size, same color. They are all perfect. There is no extra elements. It's all pure and homogeneous. It's it's just perfect. So then you see it in the wine. The wine is just pure. It's so precise. And uh and I, I think this is what we what we gain. And uh and and I want to go further and now we know that there are some some sorting tables that are using infrareds that will be able to depict anything which is not a berry, every little piece of wood, every little piece of uh, leaf of stock and that will be eliminated and we know that there are some rays now that are able to measure the amount of sugar some that are able to evaluate the amount of anthocyanins and etc so you're going to end up with a full analysis of each berry and i'm not talking about 20 years from now i'm talking you know probably five years maybe maximum 10 years and this will really help us further and that will not mean that all the wines will look the same the berries will still come from this very spot, you know. So the berries from Ducru will still have their own characteristic, their own character, their own taste, and uh, but they will express it with more purity, more loyalty. And you ferment in stainless steel? We still ferment in... Uh, we do have stainless steel and we do have concrete, but they are, we are thinking about this is a new... This is the next investment. And in what way? Which direction would you go? We think that stainless steel, some stainless steel is easy to work with. And if you have the proper shape and if you have the proper, what they call the double, double skin. So in other words, where you have the, the water that circulate all around the, the vat is better and etc. We know that now they have been working around what they call intelligent vats that are measuring everything during the fermentation process. So it's just new, but maybe down the road, it's something that we we need to, to look into and maybe even consider. We know that the wood, fermentation in, in, in wood is very beneficial. It needs to be proven that in the long term, it will, we know that it's very good for the amprimer tasting. Now, whether it is a long term or not, we don't know. But it is certainly, the problem is, you need to analyze everything. So is it the wood that is so good or is it the shape of the of the vats? So so we we don't really know. We need to we are looking into that. And the concrete we know, but the concrete also they have been working on uh, on concrete of different shapes 
uh, and different sizes, but the concrete is, is not uniform. In other words, um, there are many kinds of concrete. So we also understand that some concretes are using less plastics or additives and are better. Ideally, with no additives, it would be even better. So all that is, we are looking and searching into that. So we will not be ready before another two years or so to really decide on what we want to do. I think what, what we want is at this uh, level is to have the maximum flexibility so that we can be able to change from one issue to the other if, if needed. So I think that the new Ducru winery would have to be flexible. And you vinify by parcel. We vinify by parcel, and we not only for the uh, for everything. In other words, the alcoholic fermentation, malolactic fermentation, and then also the press. So the press are selected by parcel. So we make sure to go to the very extreme in terms of selection. When we we also do selection when we drain out the uh, after the alcoholic fermentation, we make sure that. Uh, we keep all the juices separated from the first and etc. So all that is, there is a lot of little details. A grand vin is an accumulation of little details, of little tender care that you don't feel necessary, but you feel it would be better if you do that. Do you feel often that you use a high percentage of pressed wine or not? Very interestingly, we uh, once we change the uh, the press from using a horizontal press to a vertical press, we found that uh, thanks to the gravity, now the, the, uh, the new press that we are using look exactly like the one you see on, on, on the tapestry from the Middle Ages, so <laughs> with the Archimedes uh, screw and etc. So <laughs> they really look like if, you, if we went back to the Middle Ages, but they have, they, they have the best technology in terms of hydraulic system and uh, and, and, and it's all very precise now, and uh, but it's perfect. And then you're able to, to make very... Uh, press wine is a real... It's very important. Press wine is very important. It's... Uh, some people say it's like salt and pepper in the, in the kitchen. I think it's even more than that. It's, uh, I wonder if it is not the... Uh, maybe the, the sauce <laughs> itself. <laughs> It, it doesn't seem like you use a lot. Do you use some? Oh yeah, we do. Uh, in the recent past, probably from since 2010, uh, we are over 10 percent. Oh okay, but that's that's still pretty small. 10% yeah, we produce is... it. Uh, the production is about 25 percent. So if you put 12 and a half percent, it means that you re-inject half of your half of it. I so see. it's pretty good. And you're doing mostly pump overs, or you do punch downs? Pump over. How long does the mallow usually take? Does that vary by the, the individual parcel? The whole process is done. We do the alcoholic fermentation takes 10 to 12 days and then maceration another 10 to 12 days or 14 days and etc. So a total of 20, 26, 28 days. And then we drain and then malolactic fermentation and then everything is done and everything is in barrel before Christmas. And it's 18 months in wood. And then it's 18 months in wood for Ducru. Since 2003, before it was 12. So we came back to the old 18 months since 2003. So in the historical vintages, it used to be 18 months. I think in the 60s, but we need, I, need, I would need to check, but in the 60s, it were probably, at least in the 50s, it were probably 18 months. 
how do you feel that that's helped the wine? Oh, by tasting, it's, it's yeah, yeah, it's okay, it's, uh, like well, everything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what's what's the difference in the taste? Oh, uh, it's much more uh, settled and and probably a little richer also because what you have is is you do have a natural concentration because you one of the very obvious things that nobody says is that at the level of evaporation you oh, lose you lose five percent it's not just because we drink five percent during the <laughs> we consume in the Ducru by aging the wine in barrel 18 months we consume about seven and a half percent total so those seven and a half percent is concentration so <laughs> naturally you have more concentration in the wine that's just natural and it's uh it's it's probably one of the very basic uh, things that uh, nobody expressed but <laughs> it's it's very immediate and i like basic things you know and what have <laughs> been the vintages that you've been most pleased with since 03 well of course every year is a is a challenge and and i think that every year must be envisioned as a as a facet what we are building ourselves virginie myself what we are building is making a jewel we're it's like a diamond so and each individual vintage is is like a facet of this diamond so each of them is very important you take off one little facet and the jewel is not the same so we are extremely happy of the of the 2007 we are extremely happy with the 2012 we're happy with with everything each of them being in his own territory but each is essential each vintage will is not neutral each vintage influences you. Each vintage you learn. Why are we so working so well together with Virginie? Is because she is a, a fully graduated, or a maybe she is a true Medocan. She studied pruning vines at the age of twelve, I think, in the vineyards and etc. And B, she grew up in the area. She grew up in the area, in the vineyards, and uh, and the family was involved in the vineyards. And and she was then a fully graduated engineer and enologist. So all that together makes that she has an intimate understanding. It's not only that she has the scientific knowledge, it's that she has the expertise, the experience, and the scientific knowledge, all that together. And that is why I think we are successful. Like I said earlier, our wine, our property, our estate must be in our genes. We must, we are there to to express the best of it, to help Mother Nature to give the best every year. So it must be part of ourself and um, and and that's why at this condition that we that we succeed. And that's the reason why I think it was important to to be two Medocin at the Cribocayou to really uh, project the Medoc in the future. But you are the one with the experience of the foreign market. Mm-hmm. Having worked in America, having seen some connections in Britain, having run LA. How did that influence your decision making when you brought it back home? I wish it would influence me more. <laughs> no, no, at least, or I wish that this influence will translate it in more because, because I think actually it's pretty difficult. In the wine, it's always longer. It takes longer to get the messages through because there are an enormous amount of wines produced and etc. With Lille, we were in our niche. And it actually, the access to the market was pretty easy. So I wish that I would have the same access to the market, but unfortunately, the access to the market is more difficult with wine because you have so many uh, so many producers and and everybody is is uh, rowing in the same direction. So you have a lot of competition, and it's very difficult. So now, how does it um, 
influences me. Yeah, it's probably a little understanding. Probably it's just, you know, uh, when I come with a price, I always try to translate in what's going to be shelf price. And I know that if I come at this price, it will give this shelf price. That's probably uh, not very important, but I think it's key. <laughs> at least you know. And you know that you can address because you know there is a market for this. You know, like our petit caillou by the glass, we know we're just right on target. I know that the Cribo caillou is not that expensive compared to all the uh, other stars. After all, if I if I rank the Cribo caillou 2014, if I accumulate all the scorings from the top 12 critics of the globe, we are number three with, with a few others, but we are part of the 10 top wines of the vintage in, in Bordeaux this year, and we are number three. Uh, behind Latour and Mouton. And there are a few other, we are probably five or six colleagues with us. So <laughs> I, I think that actually we are not very expensive for being the third wine <laughs> of the vintage. So, but... Um, because this is a period of time, and maybe for the last 10 years, where when people complain about Bordeaux in this country, mostly what they're complaining about is the price, usually. Yeah, because uh, because there are some, there have been some dramatic increases, but still, if Bordeaux came with such prices, it's because they they had a market and they never forced anybody in in any manner. So it's it's just because uh, we were in a different era we were in a very prosperous era and uh, you had golden boys uh, you know at uh, <laughs> in the stock exchange that were making a fortune and that would could afford very expensive wines and etc so they were but there were no hazard what happened to wine to bordeaux to top bordeaux happened also to uh, all the luxury goods and all the top things you know all the luxury uh, restaurants cars, jewelries, watches, anything, you know, and uh, fashion and etc. So Bordeaux was not an exception. On the other hand, if you really look into it, the, the, the evolution of the price compared with other region has, has been extremely reasonable. And what people forget is the, uh, that like for Ducru Bocayou, yes, I do produce Ducru Bocayou, but... <laughs> From the little list track to the Cribocayou, I cover the market from $15 chef price to $150, roughly. So, And we produce more or less the same amount in each segment. So we are covering the entire spectrum. And that's also something we need, that's the kind of message we need to uh, to send through. To say, okay, right, the uh, crew, because it's exceptional, because there is no other, you know, no other decree around the globe is, is uh, and because we have such a, a demand for it, we come at a price and and that's it. So the market makes the price. We don't make the price. The market makes the price. If you had the chance and you saw your dad one more time, what would be the first thing you'd tell him? Thank you. <laughs> Bruno Bori, he grew up in the Medoc, but perhaps with an American vision. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bruno Bori of Chateau Ducru Bucayou. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose 
and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothat, P-O-D.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. So I think there is no other business that really create that kind of special link between the, the owner and, and his land.